Let's, let's pray together. Father, as we come now to your word, Lord, we pray you would give us hearts to receive what you'd have to say to us this morning. Lord, we pray you would help us to calm all the noise that comes from busyness and distractions, from worries about even what our plans are for after this service this morning. We pray you would help us to to listen and to um, hear your word, and we pray that it would change us, that it would conform us into the image of Christ, Lord, so that we would be able to go from here and shine like lights in the world. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 4, and we'll be studying verses 8 and 9 together this morning. Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. This is a text primarily focused on our thinking. The title of our sermon this morning is Think on These Things. And as you turn there, I'd like to highlight a documentary you all may have watched recently. It was on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. I don't know if anyone's seen The Social Dilemma, but it is a documentary in which former social media executives, they expose the way that social media is attempting to wire your mind, to wire your thinking in order to achieve a certain end. And what is this end that social media and these companies are seeking to reach, to achieve? What this tell-all documentary describes is that social media is not intended to be the helpful tool that you may think it to be. Simply connecting you with your friends, allowing social interaction. No, social media platforms are ruthlessly, and I say that intentionally, ruthlessly aimed at generating reliable, consistent user engagement that can be sold to advertisers for the highest dollar. Your attention, your thoughts, the predictable patterns of your thinking are the product. So this documentary makes the case, social media, Facebook, your Facebook page isn't the product, you are the product. And therefore, the more attention, the more your thoughts are set on the things showing up on your phone, they're showing up on your computer screen, the more you're focused on your Facebook timeline or Instagram feed, the higher value you are as a product to Twitter or Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, many others that I don't know about even. What these social media companies have figured out is the quickest way to your wallet is through your mind, through training your mind to operate in predictable ways that are most advantageous for them. And train they have. The average US adult spends 38 minutes a day on Facebook, just Facebook, and over two hours and 22 minutes if you combine all social networking platforms. This is just social networking, this isn't even broader internet use. For 16 to 24 year olds, that number rises, that two hours and 22 minutes rises to three hours and one minute each day, having your mind rewired and trained by these social media companies. But here's the rub. What are the things that typically drive further engagement on these platforms? What are the things that these companies have found 
effective in getting you to stay focused, to pattern your thinking in the way they want them to, 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 make, to drive clicks and scrolls on the pages, to make comments and share posts. What are the things that they found effective at driving further engagement? Well, there are things that generate the following responses. Disgust, jealousy, envy, pride, fear, excitement, lust. These have proven more effective than the things that we tend to think that we're going to these platforms for, which are the cute pictures of puppies and, and pictures of our uh, friends and their, their children. And it's these emotional responses that are used to create your Facebook timeline or your Instagram feed. It's not a stretch to say that social media companies, by nature of their very business model, are intent on conforming your mind to this world of setting your mind on the things of the flesh. So just consider with me Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. These are the works of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. If you've spent considerable time on social media platforms, I know as, as I have in the past, you leave oftentimes feeling some of these emotions. They're trained to make you think this way. And we have incredibly active minds. Research has shown that we think on average 6,000 separate thoughts each day. And Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, these social media platforms, they're training us to engage in impurity Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, dissensions, divisions, envy, and things like these. Training our minds to engage in and focus on the things of the flesh. While this is especially true of social media, it's also characteristic of the world around us. If you look at print advertising, we had a um, friend bring over a Domino's pizza the other day, and it says right on the box, you know, you deserve this cheesy goodness. Go ahead and indulge. You know, this idea of of just embracing these fleshly desires. Hollywood media, the music industry, they're all interested in training our thoughts through the input of our minds. For Christians, then, we can say that the world around us, all these different inputs, are intent on getting us to embrace our old flesh nature and living contrary to our true identity as those found in Christ Jesus, who, as we read earlier, walk not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. So our job then, what we're going to try to focus on this morning, how do we faithfully keep in step with the Spirit? How do we embrace our identity as those whose minds are set on the Spirit? We just read the works of the flesh, but what does the mind set on the Spirit look like? What does it produce? What does it focus on? What does it think about? And how do we do this in a world that is actively pushing us in the opposite direction? So that brings us to our text this morning, Philippians chapter eight, or chapter four, verses eight through nine, where we'll see Paul speak to our two um, points in our message this morning. First, he'll speak to the objects of right thinking in verse eight, and second, he'll speak to the ends, the ends of right thinking in verse nine, the objects of right thinking and the ends of right thinking. So let's read Philippians four, verses eight through nine together. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, 
If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, regarding the context of these verses, we can note by nature of the word finally in chapter 4, verse 8, we can understand Paul to be wrapping up a thought from verse 1 this concept of standing firm in the Lord. And this was Paul's chief message to the church at Philippi. What you'll see throughout the book of Philippians is that this letter, in contrast to a letter like 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, it's not filled with Paul addressing sin run amok in the church. Instead, in this letter, we continually see him emphasizing this exhortation that we see summed up in chapter 4, verse 1 where he writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is a nice way to summarize Paul's attitude toward the church in this letter. He's saying, I love you guys. You hold a special place in my heart, and you're on the right track, and I want to see you sticking with what you know is right. I want you to stand firm in the Lord. That's my passion for you this morning, our elders' passion for you, that we stand firm in the Lord. So, as, so he proceeds then through chapter 4 to flesh out what it means to stand firm in the Lord. He addresses a controversy that had developed in the church between these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, calling on them to remember their bond of faith and, to, and their responsibility to reconciliation. In that episode, Paul is saying that standing firm in the Lord implies unity and reconciliation in our, in our relationships. It means staying on mission together. Paul then proceeds with a further listing of instructions for standing firm in the Lord emotionally and spiritually, rejoicing in the Lord, not being anxious about where God's provision will come from, being prayerful in our relationship with God. And now he proceeds in chapter 4, verse 8, to tell us how to stand firm mentally, quite possibly, I would argue, the key for standing firm and this is consistent with what we see throughout Scripture. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are called to be actively preparing our minds. Romans 12, verse 2 tells us, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We need our minds to be renewed. And 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, says that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is a consistent message throughout the New Testament. Our minds and our thinking are important. Philippians 4, verse 8, emphasizes our thinking. And the first thing I want to I want us to zero in on, before we even look at the objects of right thinking, all these different characteristics of right thinking, are that this, I want to emphasize that this renewed thinking is not some sort of works-driven process whereby we are left to accomplish this task alone. It's not some sort of new age, self-help, positive thinking mantra that if we just if we just sit and think, think enough that, that we'll, we'll get this renewed mind. No, it is a spirit-driven, spirit-enabled characteristic of the new creation believer. Paul says this in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. 
God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And that term renewal, that word renewal, is the same renewal that we find in Romans 12, verse 2, when we're told to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. What I want to do is piece those two verses together and what happens, and make the case that what happens in our minds is the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit renews the minds. It is first and decisively His work. We are radically dependent on Him. Our efforts, they follow His initiatives and His enablings. And that is the key, and I want us to leave with no confusion about it. As those who are found in Christ Jesus, as those who have the Spirit of Christ, our identity is as a new creation. Our job then is to work alongside the Spirit, to do what Paul describes in Romans chapter 13, to make no provision for the flesh, to gratify its desires. We, we come at it, we come at this job of making no provision for the flesh, we come at it knowing who we are now, not slaves to fleshly thinking. And so then we approach, so then we approach our minds and thoughts like this. Why would I think that lustful thought? Or... Why would I think that jealous thought? That's not consistent with who I am. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus with the Spirit renewing our minds. So then, now, looking back to our verse, verse 8, we can see the specific method that Paul lays out for us to for how to accomplish this task. It's to focus our minds not on the things of earth, which lead to us conforming ourselves to the world, but rather to be focusing our minds on those things that are above, on things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. So our first thought as believers, of, as followers of Jesus should be, what do these things mean, and what are things that we can think of that meet these qualifications? So first, I'd like to just go through this list, and let's just think about each of them for a moment together. First, let's look at the qualification, true. Our culture today, it's exemplified by a lack of truth. One of, the, one of the novel phrases of the past decade, I think it came up around the time of the 2016-11, or the 2016 election, was this term, alternative facts. Doesn't this just show how confused the world is about truth? Yet Jesus, in John 17, 17, he prays, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. This emphasis on ingesting and thinking on things that are truthful is so important because it directly counters lies, doubts, and deceptions, which are Satan's most prominent devices. What is our source for truth? The answer is easy. It's scripture. This is our ultimate truth source and where we can test all other sources that make claims to truth. So we must be anchored to the truth of scripture. And this is, I'm going to, I'm going to say this is our only shot at surviving this age of misinformation and conspiracy. All around us, folks are being swept up by political conspiracies like QAnon, by worldly ideologies like critical race theory and Marxism, by social media hate-mongering, and it's because we are not anchored to truth we must believe what is true, and it starts with knowing where to go to understand what is true. 
the Apostle Paul's right to first point us to what is true. Next, Paul tells us to think on things that are honorable. The term here is consistent with the language in 1 Timothy and Titus when referring to deacons, wives, older men. Those who are honorable are those who exemplify dignity, are reputable and noble. One commentator describes the term like this. The term honorable implies that which has the dignity of holiness upon it. We are to be thinking of things that are consistent with how we think of a graceful mother or a wise old man. Honorable thoughts. Paul then says we are to think on things that are just or right. In John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus describes that which is just as that which aligns with the will of the Father. Is the term used to refer to that which conforms to the perfect standard of God's righteousness. So our thinking is to be characterized by thoughts that conform to God's standard of righteousness. Not our own, not the world's, but God's will and God's standard as it's revealed through the scriptures. He continues that we are to think on things that are pure. This term is used again to describe Jesus in 1 John 3, verse 3. When John writes, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It is a call for our thinking to align with the standard of Jesus' pure nature. This is also a word used throughout Scripture to describe ceremonial cleanliness. It describes a purity so pure that it's able to be brought into the presence of God. Our thoughts are to be presentable to him at all times. I, this brought up a, uh, um, an a, uh, example when I was growing up of a pastor. He, he made a point of asking how comfortable we would be if the thoughts that are running through our mind were to be played on the projector screen on our Sunday church service. Our thoughts, the things we're thinking upon, are to be clean like a sacrifice presented to God for approval. And think how horrified we would be if our thoughts were played on this screen behind me much less presented before the all-righteous, living God. Paul proceeds that we are to think on things that are lovely or things that call forth love. Our thinking is to be focused on things that bring to mind the kind of love that Jesus showed, which was sacrificial, undeserved, and perfect. This is the love that, honestly, we can see in others if we are looking for it. If we are honest, we are each served by those who love us a lot more than we tend to think. To say it another way, we have endless reasons to think of how those around us love us in ways that we don't deserve. And our thinking is to be geared toward looking for and focusing on these ways, on things that call forth love. Paul's next charge is to think on things that are commendable. Or if you grew up with the King James Version or New King James Version of things of good report, This can be directly put into the context of what we are choosing to think of when we think of something or someone. Are we thinking of the positives or are we thinking of the negatives? And we get our English word euphemism from the underlying Greek word here. And we use a euphemism in modern English language to substitute a favorable sounding term for an unfavorable sounding term. So you might refer to the toilet, going to the toilet as going to the the men's room would would be a euphemism. Or think, think of this story. It's the, it's the story of the Patagonian toothfish. Has anyone ever eaten Patagonian toothfish? 
you may, you may say no if, if I ask that question. Toothfish doesn't sound like an appealing food to eat. However, if you were to ask Americans, if, if I were to ask you if you'd like to eat Chilean sea bass, well, the answer all of a sudden changes. They might say, you might say yes. At one time, the Patagonian toothfish was, was freely available. It was, it was one of the cheaper fishes because no one wanted to eat it because they heard this name associated with it, the toothfish, until one very clever entrepreneurial sea importer renamed it the Chilean sea bass. And now as you go to a fancy seafood restaurant or steak restaurant, sea bass is on all the menus. The lowly toothfish has come a long way, all by nature of how people chose to think about it and thus talk about it. Nothing changed about the nature of the fish. It was always a great tasting fish. But how people have chosen to consider it had dramatic effect on its consumption, on its popularity. So the question for us would be, how are we, are we thinking of things that give those around us a good reputation or a bad reputation? In a world of skepticism and cynicism, and it can be easy to get sucked into that, I'll submit that our call to think on things that are of good report, that are commendable about those around us, is critical for us to shine like lights in the world around us. Paul continues on to charge us to think on the things that are excellent and praiseworthy. These two qualities are preceded by the term if, by the phrase if. It is meant to describe the way that these two qualities, excellent and praiseworthy, they both sum up the preceding qualities and also serve as a catch-all for anything else that's consistent with these qualities. The term excellence, it's used elsewhere in scripture, such as in 2 Peter 1, verse 5, where we're told that God has called us to his own glory and excellence. So I'd, make, I'd submit that excellent things are things that are consistent with God's character. And the term praiseworthy, it also appears throughout scripture, both describing praise that can come to one from God, if you want to jot down 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, that's praise coming from God, and praise that can come from man, Romans 13, verse 3. Things that are praiseworthy are things that elicit positive responses from God and our fellow man. That's what this list is meant to encapsulate. So we can think of each of these traits as a sort of test, so to speak, a filter to run through everything we are thinking of putting into our minds and setting our minds upon, testing whether it passes the truthfulness test or the just test or the lovely test and so on. Will we set our minds on things that are consistent with the works of the spirit or will we set our minds on things that are consistent with the works of the flesh? One thing I wanna point out is it's critical for us to understand here that this approach doesn't so much focus on, what, on ignoring bad thinking it focuses on engaging in right thinking. In looking at these traits in some, they train our sights chiefly toward the word of God. For it's obvious that no other source, I mean, I challenge you to try to think of this. What source, what man, what form of entertainment could you come up with that meets all of these qualifications? I'd say the only one that we could point to is the word of God toward his character as he's revealed himself through scripture. So what does it mean for us to practically think with this filter? How do we do this? If these objects of our thinking are first and foremost satisfied by the word of God, then I would submit one way to put this filter into practice 
is through concentrated meditation on the scripture. It's the way of the Psalm 1 blessed man. Instead of simply resisting temptation toward worldly things, we, re- we replace the temptation with a concentrated meditation on things that are good. That's a practical way to put this passage into practice. One way that took real-life form for me was in the memorization of Scripture, the memorization of books of the Bible, and finding ways to infuse Scripture into moments where my thinking tended toward the flesh. I'd found myself, after years of battling sin in my life, needing to move past simply resisting temptation and move into replacing it. So I started to memorize Scripture and try to infuse it into times where I was prone to let my mind wander. So for instance, I would work on reciting scripture when I was tempted to lust. And I started with Romans 8, verse 1, which we read earlier this morning, focusing on what my identity is in Christ Jesus. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And continuing on through Romans chapter 8, and then Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11, every time temptation reared its head to, make provision, to try to get me to make provision for the desires of the flesh, responses, disciplined meditation, focused thinking on things that were true and praiseworthy and excellent. And what happened? Well, over time, lustful thoughts were replaced with desires for holiness. Just as things like Pornography and lust rewire your mind in one direction. The scriptures can rewire your minds in the opposite direction. And then this cascaded into reciting scripture while I was doing things I didn't in my flesh normally like to do. Things like dishes or the laundry or when we, our son Teddy was born and he had colic of rocking him at three and four in the morning. Reciting scripture. Romans 8.18 8, was... Was, was useful there. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, the Apostle Paul's sufferings were probably a little worse than washing dishes or doing laundry or rocking a, a baby with colic. But it's disciplined response focused on thinking thoughts that are lovely and commendable. And what happened over time? The frustration of my sleep being interrupted by this baby, this this by our young son, was replaced by a joy of speaking the scriptures to him. The frustration of doing dishes that I felt maybe I didn't dirty myself was replaced with a joy for a wife who lovingly cooks for me and my children. And let me testify to you this morning by setting my mind on Philippians 4, 8 thoughts, setting my mind on the word of God, it changed my character I moved from being a glass, to to use these kind of phrases, a glass half empty kind of person to a glass half full kind of person. Changing the input into my mind changed my character, and through it, God changed me. God used the discipline of meditating on his word to conform me more into the image of Christ, into my true identity. And this is what he calls all of us to do. Before long, those moments of temptation, of making provision for the flesh, what they'll turn into is opportunities to grow closer to the Lord Jesus. And what this then produced was the following change. The things of the earth that used to compete for my attention 
the things of the earth that compete for your attention will grow less and less attractive. If we set our minds on these Philippians 4, 8 traits, coming alongside the Holy Spirit and disciplining ourselves, we will further conform to our true identity in Christ. And in the words of the famous hymn, the things of the world will grow strangely dim. Paul continues now in verse 9 with our second sermon point, the ends of right thinking. So we saw the objects of right thinking in verse 8, now the ends of right thinking in verse 9. And this is just a logical extension of this call in verse 8. When Paul writes, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. He's just saying that the time for action has come. These things, the rejoicing in the Lord, the not being anxious, being prayerful, the things we saw at the beginning of chapter 4, and now this renewed thinking, Paul emphasizes that now that they have been taught to the Philippians, now that they've been taught to us, it's time to start living them out. James 1.22, the Apostle James says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The Christian life is a call to action. And this verse is a call to action for the Philippians, and by extension, a call for action to each of us. We must turn teaching about right thinking into actions of right thinking. And this means spiritual discipline, personal discipline. I found that much of the Christian life is taking the spirit-given affections that we receive as new creations in Christ Jesus and doing the disciplined work of feeding them, feeding those affections, the disciplined work of carving out time each day to immerse ourselves in the truth of God's word, even when it doesn't feel emotionally invigorating. The disciplined work we're called to of consciously choosing to think Philippians 4, 8 thoughts about ourselves, about our spouses, our friends, our children. And this will look differently for each of us. For some, it will, it will be the discipline of memorizing long passages of scripture. For others, I was talking to someone this week, it may mean the discipline of writing out Philippians 4, 8 thoughts about themselves and about others on note cards to serve as reminders in moments when we're tempted to think negatively. Still for others, it is finding an accountability partner for an annual Bible reading plan. But it's a call to action. The Christian life requires disciplined action, disciplined thinking. And if we are, as a church, to stand fast in the face of the world, a world filled where social media and, and print media and news media are, are coming at us all around us, it's information overload. If we're as a church to stand fast in the face of this world, we must attend first and foremost to our personal sanctification, the state of our own heart and thoughts, taking action inside these walls so that we'll, we'll be prepared to take action outside these walls. So the first end of right thinking is action. But the second end of right thinking is blessing. As we pursue right thinking, as we fill our minds with those things that match up with Philippians 4.8 and avoid those things contrary to these qualities, we are promised the God of peace will be with you. And this is a promise that we can trust. It's a motivating promise, as we've talked about here at Kenwood before. which We've talked before plenty of times. If you don't trust the promise, you won't obey. 
So here is the promise. The God of peace will be with us as we actively set our minds on the things of the Spirit. As we trust the promise that the God of peace will be with us, as we think on things that are true and lovely and pure, we will actually be enabled to obey the call to think on these things. So when we try to wake up in the morning to read our Bibles and we're feeling groggy and wanting an extra 15 minutes in bed, we can motivate ourselves with the promise, the God of peace will be with me. When we are trying to work up the discipline to be slow to be angry and to think commendable thoughts about someone, we can motivate ourselves with the promise, the God of peace will be with me. We can trust the promise. It's a motivating promise. Now, as we practically consider our lives today in light of this text, there are a few questions that I'd like us to consider as we close. First, what are the things that you're choosing to think upon? With, with this much thinking going on, it's important to have a plan to guide your thinking, to shape its trajectory toward things that are good. Now, we, we, we probably have a hard time shaping all 6,000 or so thoughts that we have each and every day, but we can set the trajectory. And so my question is, what type of trajectory are you on? You, you may uh, deal in, in your job with, with something called pie charts, which are, you know, business charts that look like, a, look like a pie showing different proportions. And if you put a pie chart together of your thoughts, what proportion would be focused on Philippians 4, 8 qualities? What proportion is fed by the truth of God's word? Or what proportion would you say is fueled by social media, by television, by video games, or other forms of mind-training media? I think it's no surprise that studies have shown that people often feel better about their self-image and they're about, feel better about others around them after significantly reducing their social media intake. So I would ask, might this be something worthwhile to consider as we reach the end of a year and think about the year ahead? What are the things that you are choosing to think upon? Second, what kind of attitudes toward others do you typically find in yourself? Do you tend to be critical and notice the bad things in people? If so, it's likely a symptom of what you're choosing to think upon. Remember, we're supposed to be thinking on things that are commendable, and if we're consistently having attitudes towards others that are frustrated, that are critical, it may be a symptom of what you're choosing to think upon. Our opinions and our feelings are formed by what we are choosing to think about. And it very well could be that the things we find offensive in others, the things that make us frustrated, are being driven more by our own mental inputs, our own thoughts, which are being shaped by worldly things instead of by scripture. So is there someone like that in your life that you find frustrating and tend to be critical of? Try thinking Philippians 4.8 thoughts about them. Will you consider for 2021 trying to think about people through a Philippians 4.8 filter? And I, I would say here's, here's some homework for all of us on the way home, some practical application. Let's, as we get in our cars to drive home today, let's take a moment to consider a praiseworthy adjective that describes 
the other people in our car. So just try to go through that process as you're on your drive home and think of a praiseworthy adjective that you can think about each person in the car. Just go around, go around the vehicle. If you're not um, driving home with someone, think about uh, maybe the person you sat next to or someone you talked to today at church. It's good practice to just start thinking good Philippians 4.8 thoughts. And I promise you, it will start changing your attitudes. Third, do you find yourself anxious and in poor spirits frequently? If so, I'd ask that you take a look at what's going into your mind. Are you consistently and with concentrated focus looking at things that are true, praiseworthy, or excellent? Psychological experts, they contend that if you're anxious, one of the problems is that you're thinking too much. So they tell you, don't, you're thinking too much about it. Just, just stop thinking. The Bible actually says the opposite. The scriptures say the reality is that you are thinking too little. You're, just, you're thinking too little in the right direction. Christian, the Christian faith is essentially thinking. Jesus, in Matthew, the book of Matthew, tells us to look at the birds Think about them and draw your deductions. Look at the grass. Look at the lilies of the field. Consider them. What are we thinking about? If you find yourself anxious and in poor spirits frequently, you need to do more thinking, not less. Let's look around us and try to think more in the right direction, the way Jesus trains us to, the way Paul here trains us to. And lastly, would you define yourself as someone who is a man or woman of action? Do you take what you hear and apply it? Paul's command to the church at Philippi was to take this instruction and to use it. He wanted to see them standing firm in the Lord, and this wasn't possible if they were just good hearers. They needed to apply it to their lives. This time of year it typically brings to mind resolutions that oftentimes we don't have good track records of keeping. But let's not have that stop us from acting. Let's not be condemned by, condemn ourselves over past instances where we may have fallen short. But let's be those who take action starting today. As we close, Christians, let's go from here this morning with a renewed focus to assess our thoughts. What we are thinking upon, what we are training our minds with, what we are allowing to form our thought patterns Let's embrace the Spirit's work to conform our minds into the image of Christ. Setting our minds on things that are above, things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Let's take action and trust in the promise that the God of peace will be with us. And if you're here this morning and you find yourself with a mind that is set on the flesh, a mind warped by social media, by disinformation, seeking truth and peace but not finding it. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel is that there is truth and that truth is available to you this morning. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved if you will turn from your sin and by faith confess your dependence on the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You can experience the blessing of, spirit, of the Spirit-renewed mind.
that experiences peace with God. If this is you, if, if, you, if, if you don't know this Lord, I'd ask you to ask your neighbor sitting next to you after service about this good news. And I promise you, you'll find a friend eager to share with you the way of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we we come before you and we are in awe of the way that you chose us before the foundation of the world to save us. Lord, not of any works of righteousness that we have done or could do, but by your mercy. And Lord, you have put your spirit inside of us to renew our minds to form us into the image of Christ. Lord, this is a miracle, and we don't deserve it, but we praise you for it. And Lord, we lose sight of it a lot. Lord, we are surrounded by, by media and culture and, and people who are quick to lift our eyes off of this wonderful truth that you have accomplished and the mission you've given us as a result. And we're prone to, to set our minds on things of this earth. Lord, we pray you would help us. Lord, we want to do the diligent work of spiritual discipline to, to come alongside the work that you have done in our hearts and in our minds and to glorify you with our thoughts with our and then glorify you with our actions and with the way we live so that our lives would be a testimony to all of those around us of your goodness and your mercy Lord you are good and your mercy your steadfast love endures forever Lord we pray that you would cause this truth of Philippians 4 verses 8 and 9 to sink deep into our bones, Lord, that we would be resolute in planting ourselves of, of being like the man planted next to the rivers of water who brings forth fruit in its season. Lord, we, we, want, to, we want to live lives that are pleasing to you. And Lord, we can only do that by the power of your spirit. So we ask that you would, you would spur us on. Lord, we use this text to spur us on. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.